Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg. I'm here to read you my Dvar Torah on Parshat Kitisa. The title is God as Defined by God, footnote, with a little help from covenantal friends. What is God's true nature? Loving, just, jealous, punitive, forgiving? There is contradictory evidence in our lives and experiences. Moses experiences the extremes of unparalleled closeness to God out of common concern and communication to Israel. Then he walks on the knife edge of divine anger, threatening to wipe out Israel for betraying the covenant by worshiping a golden calf. This contradiction drives Moses to ask God directly, quote, show me your way that I may know you. Moses wants to understand what's God's nature really like. The initial divine response is that humans cannot grasp a true picture of God, but only a partial one, as it were, a side view. As it says in the Torah, you can see my back, but my face cannot be seen. But then God offers a self-definition. This became the most influential guideline in the tradition to the true nature of the divine. And I read it, quote, with my comments. Hashem, Hashem, loving God, Hashem, Yudkevavke, the divine name expressing God's close involvement with human beings, God's close involvement with human beings, including the covenant. Repeating again, loving God, Hashem, Yudkevavke, God remains that way even after humans sin or betray the covenant. Continuing, mighty one, who is merciful and gracious. Gracious means gives goodness one-sidedly, without a quid pro quo. Slow to anger, long-suffering, and overflowing with love and commitment. Guards covenantal love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and then continuing the God's self-definition, but does not wipe out guilt, punishes the iniquity of the fathers up to the children and children's children and to the third and fourth generation. See the self-definition in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Two observations leap out in reading this definition. One is that this is overwhelmingly a portrait of a loving, caring, giving, forgiving deity. So much for the stereotype that the God of Hebrew Scriptures is a God of wrath. But the second observation is that the last phrase, i.e., nevertheless does not wipe out guilt, is a contradiction, or at least its intention with the main description of the forgiving, loving God. So how can these two qualities of forgiving and not forgiving be reconciled. Implicit in this clash is a deeper message that there is no static, once-and-for-all definition of God. The divine-human relationship is dynamic and interactive. Furthermore, the act of entering into covenant, which turns an existing love into a commitment, has an effect, both immediately and as the covenant continues. So the clash of forgiving and not wiping out the sin 
is an invitation to the human partner to resolve this conflict. And indeed, already in Deuteronomy, Moses rules that, quote, fathers shall not be put to death or punished for children's sins, and children shall not be put to death or punished for father's sins. Every man shall be put to death, i.e. punished, for his own sins only. And look at Deuteronomy 24.16. In fact, this verse, a Midrash responds that Moses made this new ruling, overruling the non-forgiving and the remembering to punish, and God consented to his judgment. Since this was God speaking of God, later generations privileged this text as a kind of meta-theological, meta-halachic, authoritative statement by which to write and rewrite what God was instructing for their time. They directly quoted or intertextually referenced these verses to understand God's nature as they were experiencing it. This begins elsewhere in the Bible already. When God wants to wipe out the people of Israel for accepting the spies' negative report about the land of Canaan, Moses quotes these words back to God directly as a counter-argument for forgiveness. In the prophetic period, the prophet Joel calls and uses these words to encourage the Jews to repent before a combined famine and military invasion wipes out the land and the people. Since God is merciful and forgiving, etc., he argues repentance can reverse the decree of destruction. And as a final example, the prophet Jonah, in his book, explains that he fled from God's call in order to avoid being the messenger to Nineveh. He explains that he knew that God, being merciful and forgiving, etc., would let Ninveh off the hook, would annul their punishment, and thus leave Jonah looking like a false prophet. Now the rabbis continued the focus on the verses in Kitisa, the verses in our parsha, as the ultimate definition of God, so authoritative that one can depend on it in charting our religious behaviors. Calling the definition the 13 midot, the character traits that are primary aspects of the divine and encounter with humans, they placed these verses at the center of the Yom Kippur liturgy of repentance, as well as in all slichot, penitential prayers, the services both during Elul in the run-up to the High Holidays and throughout the year. The rabbis also continued the process of interpretation, and reshaping of the divine words in a remarkable fashion, despite the general rule in the liturgy to use verses from the Torah only in their exact primary textual form, they simply cut out the last part of the last verse of Kitisa, which dictates that God will not forgive, <coughs> but will punish in the following generations. Even more dramatically, they cut this verse in the middle of the phrase. In Hebrew, venake lo yenake. Literally, it means forgiving? No, not forgiving. The divine self-definition was now cut to read venake, forgiving, meaning forgiving iniquity, 
transgression and sin. By authority of these covenantal actions, the divine self-definition became that God is totally forgiving. I should add, it's not quite as dramatic as it sounds, because it's actually only one step further that the original divine self-definition, which spoke of punishing. That verse said that God exercised covenantal love for thousands of generations, whereas the punishment continues only up to four generations. This means that the minimum ratio of loving forgiveness to punishment is 2,000 to 4 or 500 to 1. Of course, the rabbis then made the extra step of making it totally forgiving. Now, this is not some arbitrary rabbinic change. The dynamic of living in covenant with God for more than a millennium taught the rabbis that God, in essence, was a forgiving, not a punishing deity. One can argue that the dynamic of interaction in the covenant affected God, and not just our understanding of God's nature. After all, the Sinai Covenant establishment could be interpreted as a conditional election of Israel. Note the words said just before Sinai, quote, If you listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure among the nations. That's Exodus 19, verse 5. This suggests that if, if Israel fails to obey God's voice, and betrays the covenant, then it could well forfeit its chosenness. This understanding is supported by God's initial response to Israel's betrayal of the, of the covenant by building a golden calf. There, God proposed initially to wipe out the people of Israel and replace it with Moses' descendants and those who remained faithful. Now, Moses insisted that whatever the fate of the Jewish people it must be his fate, too. He persuaded the Lord instead to forgive the whole people. And there is a replay of this scenario after the fiasco of the spies' negative report. One might say that in those two incidents, God learns that the attachment to Israel has grown so much that the Lord is not ready to kick Israel out of the covenant for failure to live up to its terms. In short, out of the covenantal connection, the divine love has grown into unconditional commitment. This understanding of unconditional was the message of the great prophets of Israel when the first temple was destroyed. Many Israelites were concerned that if God allowed the temple's destruction and the Jewish people to be exiled from Israel, it could only mean that the Lord had rejected Israel because of its repeated gross violations of the covenant, both in worshiping idolatrous cults and in stealing and abusing from fellow human beings. So the prophets responded to this fear that God punished Israel only for the moment and for their own good. The prophets assured the people that God's love had grown in the course of living the covenant over the centuries. The covenantal dynamic showed that God had become all-forgiven. Even better, the divine attachment to Israel and the covenant had become unbreakable. In the words of Isaiah, quote, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with an everlasting covenantal love, 
I will gather you to me, to me, in mercy. Quote, the mountains will dissolve and the hills crumble, but my committed love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace with you shall never be removed. Those are the words of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 9, 10.